Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Okay, so um, we've uncovered what, I, what is identity. We know that Jesus tells us that in order to find who we are at our deepest core, we have to lose who we think we are or who others say we are or who we want to be or try to be. Um, traditional identity always looks at the externals, looks at performance, and uh, a con- affirms and secures and and gives you significance and value based on how you perform up to others' standards, okay? Just remember this, okay, and especially the young people. Um, traditional identity takes good, good things and makes them ultimate things, all right? So it's good to live a life of service to others. It's a godly, it's a Christ-like thing to, to live honorably, Okay? But that living honorably shouldn't define you. And it shouldn't define others to you, okay? Um, if, if the first thing you notice about somebody is what they wear to church, welcome to traditional identity. You just, you're thinking through the grid. It's so deeply woven into you. The first thing you notice is, wow, that person isn't dressed like us. That person doesn't look like us, Okay? Um, so that is a traditional identity world. And we said it steamrolls over, over your individuality, your dreams, your desires. Okay. So the world comes along over the last several hundred years the, through the Renaissance and Enlightenment and the, the, um, the, 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 the pre-modern and modern, and now we're in the, this post-modern era. And the, the philosophy of our world came along and said, You are unique, and nobody should have the authority or the power to tell you who you are. No other human being should have that kind of authority in your life. And nobody should define systems that crush or squash or inhibit your individuality. Okay. And... The modern philosophy comes along and says, don't allow anybody to define you. Don't allow anybody to tell you who you are. Now, this is enticing, especially to young people. Why? Because we live in, we live in a weird world with the social media world has changed the whole psychology of identity. And it's all visual, it's all contrived, it's all projected and, and it's all malleable. It's all fluid. You are who you say you are. You are whoever you feel like being. You are whoever you want to be in the moment. And all you have to do to change who you are is change your social media profile. You can try on new identities like you try on clothes. You can truly, you can literally like transform your whole sense of self. What is this? Where did it come from? Well, it... At its core, psychologically, it is the, it's the secular response to the insufficiency and supposed oppression of a world that for thousands of years has said, you are who we say you are. And it resonates with us because um, in so many forms on the planet, okay, let's just reach back several thousand years to ancient world where women were oppressed and objectified and treated as not even second-class citizens. And then Jesus comes along, and there's women in his entourage that are valuable to him. The first missionary he sent to Samaria was a woman who was deeply flawed and failed. And suddenly Jesus values women. The first observers of the resurrection and the witnesses to his resurrection were women. I mean, all of a sudden, the, the, the narrative of Jesus completely shifts against the cultural narrative. And if you were a woman in that era, the traditional identity says, you're nothing. You have no value. But clearly that strikes against even 
the, 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 what we know to be true in our hearts and lives. and mind. It's woven into us. And so there, the, there's a part of the human uh, psyche that wants to rise up against that and say, no, that's unjust. You can't hold me hostage to that kind of structure. And that narrative plays out in, in all of our lives on some level at some point um, with, when the traditional identity fails us, okay? So the world is only too happy to come along and say, well, here's a better way. And we're going to call this a modern identity, okay? And a modern identity simply says, I define me. I define me. No one has the power to define me but me. Now help me out. Um, do I have intrinsic, God-given individuality? Yes or no? Yes. yes, you do. Okay, we all do. Should any human being or group of human beings have unfettered authority to tell me who I am? Yes or no? Yes. No. That's, that's why we call Jesus Lord. Because frankly, whatever defines you is your Lord. Wherever you look for that ultimate validating source of value and security and significance, that's your Lord. That's your supreme thing. That's your ultimate thing. Um, so, yeah, th there's strands of truth in, that in this that, like, no human being should have that kind of leverage or authority. That, that can become oppressive and bondage. And there is individuality in you that God's given to you. So the, the modern identity comes along and says, well, there is no God, so that doesn't matter. Um, and you're just randomly evolved biological matter, so there really is no true significance to you. There's no true value to you. Um, and so it, it's all a construct. There really is no man and woman. That's a man-made construct. Uh, there really is no gender. That's a psychological construct that traditional uh, uh, world has imposed on us. Let's break down the binaries. You've heard all this conversation. You've heard this stuff in the political season. By the way, I just want to throw this in. You'll know, you're, you'll know you've elevated lesser factors to an identity when somebody can't disagree with you without you attacking them. When you have to attack somebody for disagreeing with you, let me tell you what that's a signal of that whatever they disagree with you on is not just your tradition or your preference or your opinion, it's your identity. And they haven't just expressed that they disagree and they see it differently, they've, they've actually attacked you. I love to talk about the Bible version issue with people, but there are people you just can't talk about that with. <laughs> like they get so heated, so angry, and they get to this point where they're ready to just clock you and then, then I'm like, at that point, I want to go, wow, it, I, I, I think you might want to read the fruit of the Spirit in your version. <laughs> like, I wish that your Bible was producing its qualities in you. Um, you, you can't, some people, you can't talk to about politics. Why? Because it's more than their preference. It's more than just their temporal you know, I grew up singing this song, This World is Not My Home. What happened to Christians that believe that? Like, oh, yes, it is. And the next president's going to save us. Jesus kind of did, but not all the way. The next president's going to save us. I mean, it's, it's all, they're so, they're, their identity is so rooted in politics, you can't have a rational conversation with them without, without the heated, vehement, uh, why? Because you're attacking their identity. So th these, are, these are deep, deeply woven things. Well, the modern identity comes along and says, hey, reject that all. Liberate yourself, set yourself free, and you go out there and define yourself. Now, where does this show up? Let me give you a couple examples. I took Haley. We, we do these dad and daughter dates. She's married now, so we'll probably do less of them. But a few years back... Um, I wanted to take her, so I'm about 30 minutes from Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. They have a free art museum. It's open five or six days a week. 
And Yale's campus is real pretty. They got a, they got a great bookstore and they got nice restaurants and coffee shops and stuff. So I said, hey, Haley, let's go down to the art museum. I've never been to an art museum. I'm not an art guy, so I just walked around like an idiot, you know. I just, I, art museum, Goodwill, I don't know. I'm just walking around, you know. <laughs> and so, um, but Haley's kind of intellectual, and she gets into that kind of stuff. She's studied literature. She's got a writing degree from Liberty, and she's just kind of into, she's heady. And so we go to this art museum, and um, it, it, we start on the ground floor, which is ancient stuff, and then you work your way up. The, the, the cool floor was about the fourth or fifth floor, which is the early American art. And... Trumbull paintings that are in all of our history books and all of our, our textbooks in school, those actual paintings are on the walls at that museum. I'm like, oh, this is cool. Like, I've seen these a million times. And here's the real paintings from the revolutionary era. And, um, and then the top floor was modern art. So we're coming up the stairs, and, and I said, Haley, buckle up. It's about to get weird. <laughs> so we rounded the corner. We come up to the top floor. I notice there's a security guard off to the side, and I look in the corner, and I see hanging from the ceiling a snow shovel. Wooden handle, metal shovel for snow, hanging from a fishing line. <laughs> I looked at that, and I was about to go over and tell this guard, somebody needs to call maintenance and tell them to get that thing down before it falls and hurts somebody and take it back to the shop so they can shovel snow when it's ready. And I'm looking at that, and I looked over at him, and he walked over to us. He saw the whimsical look on my face. And uh, I was kind of joking, like somebody left a snow shovel hanging there. He goes, that is a work of art. <laughs> and I laughed, like you did. And he goes, no, seriously. I said, come on. He said, I work up here eight hours a day, I've stood here hour after hour. I could give you every lecture of every art teacher and every class that comes through. I could tell you every artist and the value of every one of these works of art. And he said, that was created by Marcel Duchamp in 1913 or 1912 or something. He was a French artist. He and a group of buddies, young men, college age kind of guys in France were trying to become artists. And they resented the man-made systems that defined and judged and evaluated art by traditional metrics. Maybe they couldn't live up to them. And so Marcel created a kind of artwork that he called ready-mades, in which he just went to the early 1900 version of Walmart and bought a snow shovel and hung it up and said, that's art. What was he doing? Now, there's thick philosophy behind what he's doing. Now, on the surface, we say he's stupid. Like, that's not art. Um, a little, little uh, one layer deeper than that, we would say he's defiant. He is, um, he's foolish. But at his heart, what he's saying is, I revoke the art world's authority to define what art is. I'm the artist, and art is what the artist says it is. So I'm going to buy a shovel, and I'm going to call it art, and it is art because I'm the authority over my art, and I say it's art. And that security guard told me that was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars that stupid snow shovel. And they're like, no, I can get one for 20 bucks. <laughs> uh, Duchamp did a bunch of things like this. He took a toilet and laid it on its side. <laughs> it's just weird. You can look him up. But it was, it's the early iteration of this idea of reject the traditional definitions and you define you and you do you and you be you. And this has come forward to where it is mainstream. Okay, it is mainstream in our narratives, and I'm gonna sh I'm gonna have a little fun in showing you how. Okay, Danny Thomas, where are you? Hey, can you come play piano for us for a minute? Okay, you can help me with this big time. And I just realized, man. So, Danny and I, we we have done a lot of ministry together over the years, and this will just be fun. So, Bo Thomas, um, 
Let me, let me tell you what to play here. Let's just surprise them, okay? Um, let, me, let me pull up my lyrics. Let me go here. Can you hear me? Okay. If you know the song, sing it with me. How does it start? Here's what, here's what I know. I'm going to start. I'm going to try to get your key. A king, kingdom of isolation. Kingdom of isolation. And it looks like I'm the queen. The wind is howling like this swirling storm inside. Couldn't, couldn't keep it in. Heaven knows I tried. Okay, heaven knows I tried. Don't let, don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl. You, uh, that's the wrong key, but be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. Well, now they know. Now, track with me for a second. What is she singing about? She's singing about traditional identity. She's saying, Here, here's who I really am, but I can't be that. I, I've got to hide it. I've got to conceal it, not feel it. I, I can't let them know. Well, now they know. And what does she do? Let it go. Let I'm trying to catch it. What they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me. Anyway, listen to the words. Hang on, Danny. We'll go to another song. Can't hold it back anymore. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. You remember, okay. Okay. All fun. I love the song. It's a fun movie, unless you've seen it a million times, and every dad in the room has, probably. Let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go. Turn away and slam the door. Let it go. What, she's, what is she doing? She's moving from the traditional. She's got this great gift. She can make Slurpees. <laughs> Talk about an individuality. Okay, but, but her individuality is rendered dangerous. So, so it's stuff it, bottle it up. You can't be you. Hide away in this palace forever. And you are destined to be the queen of Arendelle. That's who you have to be. You can't be you, you have to be this. And what she ends up doing is running and liberating yourself and saying, I don't care. I don't care what they're going to say. She's moving from traditional to modern. Okay, all right, let me see if we can get our key together on this one. Um, I've been staring at the edge of the water long as I can remember. Just sing it with me, never really knowing why. I wish I could be the perfect daughter, but I come back to the water. Okay, every turn I take, every trail I track, every path I make, every road leads back to the place I know where I cannot go, but I long to be. See the line where the sky meets the sea and it calls me. And no one knows how far it goes. If the wind and my sail and the sea stays behind me, one day I'll know. If I just go, there's just no telling how far I'll go. Okay. Okay, hold up. So, it's the same story. Hang on. Different characters, different tune. I know everybody on this island seems so happy on this island. Everything is by design. I know everybody on this island has a role on this island. Maybe I can roll with mine. I can lead with pride. I can make us strong. I'll be satisfied if I play along. But the voice inside, do you see the conflict? The community conflicts with the individuality. Now, we're coming back to Scripture. Hang on. This is all the world around us, okay? 
I'll be satisfied if I play along. But the voice inside sings a different song. What is wrong with me? See, this is the narrative that's being woven into the psyche of our three and four and five-year-olds. And it's, it's not entirely wicked. It's just deceptive. And you'll see how it's not entirely wicked, but it's tremendously deceptive. All right, here's another one. I want to be where the people are. Up where they walk, up where they run, up where they stay all day in the sun, wandering free. Wish I could be part of that world. What would I give if I could live out of these waters? What would I pay to spend a day warm on the sand? Bet you on land, they understand. Bet they don't reprimand their daughters. Bright young women, sick of swimming, ready to stand. It's always the girls they're going after. It's always the girls. And so here's like, is this terror? Is this ter totally wicked? Bright young women? They are bright young women. Like there's truth woven with deception here. Um, ready to know what the people know. Ask them my questions. When's it my turn? Wouldn't I love, love to explore the shore up above, out of the sea? Wish I could be part of that world. One more. We could do this all day. It's just everywhere. And I hope that I'm giving you eyes to see this everywhere. This is great fodder to carry on gospel and theological conversations with your kids. Because we're watching these movies with our families, but we're not helping our kids sift between these narratives and unpack them through a biblical lens. And they can't fall prey to this, all right? Last one. Uh, I'm going to cut into the middle again, Danny. I want much more than this provincial life. I want adventure in the great wide somewhere. I want it more than I can tell. And for at once it might be grand to have someone understand I want so much more than they've got planned. Traditional identity. They've got planned. Okay. I want adventure in the great... So, uh, Bell is torn. They're, they're, the characters all... Why do, we re, why do we like these movies? We like them, not just because they're fun, we like the songs. We resonate with the struggle. That's why we like these movies. Even as adults, that's why we like these movies. Let me give you a couple of grown-up versions of this. Um, greatest Showman. Um, we can live in a world that we design. I'm trying to remember the lyrics. Million dreams are keeping me awake. Remember that? That's, that's a fun song. I mean, Road Trip with Haley, put on Greatest Showman. You know, first time I heard the song, she was getting ready in her bathroom. She's playing the song, and I said, turn that off. She's like, why? It's just a good musical. I said, no, that's, that's false teaching. That's, that's pagan philosophy. You can't design your own world. It's, it, that's pagan, you know. So I sat down and watched the movie with her. You know, there's this place in the movie where Barna is helping all these outcasts have a new value, new identity at the circus, and they sing this song, this is me. <laughs> and in one moment, you're like, yeah, this is you. This, yeah, yeah. Those people have a new sense of value. But taken to its extreme, you've got the gender narrative going, this is me. I'm not a man, I'm a woman. And I can be that if I want to be. So it's this mixed bag, okay? Um, I'm done. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. Okay. Let me pull back up my main outline. So modern identity says go out and define yourself. Self-identify. Now, why, what is, let's talk about what the, the, the promise or the, the strand, the bait. Let's talk about the bait under, on top of the hook. Why is this attractive? It's attractive because it seems or it promises to honor our individuality. The individuality that traditional identity trampled 
Modern comes along and says, you can have it back. Go be you. Set yourself free. Okay? Um, it, it tells you to pursue your dreams and desires. But here's the flaw. Here's the hook under the bait. It sends you into an ocean of options and tells you to figure it out for yourself. In the first position, it seems so attractive and hopeful, but now here you are, lost in an ocean of millions of identity options. Who do you want to be? Life is short. You better get busy. To me, this is like, this is like, there's one version, here's the, the, the kind of the assumption, there's one true you out there. It's like if you took a cruise from New York to London, and halfway across the Atlantic, you took a quarter and chucked it out into the ocean. And then when you got to London, you grab an 18-year-old and said, that quarter is the secret to your entire life fulfillment and happiness. Go find it. What are the chances in this lifetime that kid's going to find that quarter? That's what the modern identity says. Try, try, try until you find the you that's truly you. It's telling Larry with his concussion, when he's falling to pieces psychologically, get out of the car, go out into the world, son, and go remember who you are. Go figure it out. Go find yourself. And what it ends, what it is, it starts you as a young person on this journey of perpetual experimentation with your one life. And, and, and that experimentation leads you to perpetual recreation. You're trying on and off new versions of yourself. You're trying this major and that major at college and this boy and this girl and that. Oh, uh, maybe I'm not heterosexual. Maybe I'm bisexual. Maybe I'm homosexual. And maybe I'm... Trans, I mean, I don't even know all the terms. And they're not just starting this with 15-year-olds. They're starting this with 7-year-olds. And you got now first-grade teachers asking kids, are you a him or a her or a they? That, my friends, is abusive. It is psychologically abusive, okay? Because that 7th grader does, or 7-year-old does have definition. That 7th grader, it's foolish to say, what do, whatever you want to be, be before their sexuality has even awakened, before their desires have even awakened, they're telling kids, maybe you're bi, maybe you're trans, maybe you're... That's, that's ludicrous, okay? That, that gender is fluid and that you're defined... Here's, here's what that narrative says. You're defined by your desires. You're defined by your lusts. Your desires define you. Deify your desires and chase your desires. So whatever you feel, that's what you are. See, traditional identity says, whatever you do, that's what you are. Modern identity says, no, it's whatever you feel, that's what you are. Hey, the problem is, our feelings are really fickle. Do you ever remember in high school how many people you had a crush on? <laughs> Let me tell you how my feelings are fickle. I want to be healthy. I want to exercise and work out and keep myself really healthy. But I also want to eat pizza and In-N-Out Burger and donuts. I have conflicting desires, truly. Our desires are fluid. Our emotions are fluid. If your identity is, is, is based in the modern narrative, you have a very fluid identity. You have a very subjective identity, okay? It's always in motion, which makes you exceedingly fragile. Um, but here's the thing about this identity. It's still performance-based, Okay, traditional identity, you're performing for everybody else. Modern identity, you're performing for yourself. Okay, you're either working hard for others or we're working hard for you. It is intense, immense pressure. Find it soon. Fulfill, be fulfilled. Find your fulfillment in being your true self. Get out there, figure out who you are. Go into your heart and figure out who you are and then liberate yourself and announce to the world what you are or who you are. Here's the other thing about this identity. It is really deceptive in that here's how it works. I'm going to break away from my parents and my people and my community 
and all the things they say that I should or have to be, and I'm going to go into my heart, uh, and I'm going to let it go. I'm going I'm to decide what or who I am. But inevitably, I have to come back to people and announce I have to come out with my new self. And I have to tell them who I am or what I am so that they will affirm it. Now think about it. What just happened? It became a traditional identity. It's still looking for external validation. Okay? So I'm going to use a silly illustration. I go into my heart. I don't like being a person, human being. I'm a tree. So now... I know I'm not a tree, but I'm going to be a tree. I'm going to self-identify as a tree, so i got to come out and tell you that I'm a tree. My mission is to feel tree-ish. Because I'm convinced that being a tree is going to make me feel tree-ish. I thought this was a really obscure illustration until my assistant a couple weeks ago sent me an article about a woman who actually is self-identifying as a tree. No kidding. It's a true story. Somebody's really doing this. So I come out, I'm a tree! And I act like a tree and, and glue bark to myself and staple leaves to myself and I'm like, I'm a tree and, I, and I'm requiring you. And we live in this crazy world that here's what the world says. You must respect the self-identity of whatever somebody says. You have the right to tell me I'm not a tree. Okay, so you have to tell me I'm a tree. All right, so I'm a tree and you all say? Okay, but here's the problem with this. It is such a stupid game. Professing themselves wise, they became fools, okay? Because here's what I know is happening. I know I'm not a tree, so I'm lying to myself. You know I'm not a tree, so you're lying to me. I know that you know I'm not a tree, so I know you're lying to me. So how is this going to make me happy? When I know I'm not a tree. No, it actually just makes me angry. Because declaring myself to be a tree doesn't fulfill me, and you telling me I'm a tree doesn't fulfill me. So now I'm just getting angry, which is why we have a world that the more modern and self-liberating it becomes, the angrier it becomes, to the point that we're going to burn the system down. We're going to burn the buildings. We're going to tear up the country. We're going to destroy everything. And, and the only place it can go is anarchy. But um, this is, is, is a total dead-end road of despair and rage. Okay, so on the good side, it's like, go be you, which sounds promising, but the dark side is, in, is, is huge. All right, here's what I want you to see about both of these, then i got to unpack the last. The, they're both save-yourself propositions. You're either working hard for you or working hard for someone else. They are both, and I want you to see this, they're horizontal I'm looking to others for affirmation and security and acceptance and value, or I'm looking to me to create it from within myself. They're horizontal. They're both about trying and failing. They're both about living for an identity rather than from an identity. They're both fragile and fluid. They change. The traditional can change when I lose it or fail it. The modern changes when I don't feel it. And it's a false dichotomy. And here's the world where the world has pinned us. The world has created a tension between who I have to be and who I want to be. So my world, my community, my, my, my family and community where God placed me needs me to be this. But I want to be this. And so there's a, there's a, there's a conflict of soul, and, and it's, it's one against the other. And the young people in the room, if you let Satan get the best of you, it's going to be, I've got to run from my parents and family and church, or else I'll never get to be me. But here's the problem. You won't get to be you if you give other people the, 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 the some authority to define you, but you won't get to be you if you run from God-given structures either. So both are a loss, Okay. Um, but there's, this is a false dichotomy. And it, it leaves you, when you unpack this, it's, it's like, is there a better way? Is there, is there an identity that, that fulfills my 
hearts, dreams, and desires as an individual and also plugs me into community and family and blesses the needs of others in honor. Is there an identity that it doesn't have to be either or? Is there an identity that is not performance-based or measured by my, my uh, hard work and effort? And the answer is yes, okay? And the time remaining, that's what we call a gospel identity, okay? I want, I want to contrast this because what Jesus is saying when he says, lose your life, he's essentially saying, lose your attachment to fragile, losable, breakable understandings of who you are. Lose your right to self-identify and lose your defining attachment to everybody else's approval systems, okay? He's saying lose your performance-based self. So the gospel identity is Jesus defines me, okay? Jesus defines me. So how is this different? Well, your relationship with Jesus was based on his work, not yours. Okay? Um, your relationship with Jesus is you coming into reconciliation with your creator. See, one of the reasons we go after traditional and modern identity so breathlessly and so with such fervor and dependence is we, we come into life ostracized from God. We don't know our Father. And so we're grasping for anchor points to tell us who we are. The problem is they're all shifting. And when they shift, it rocks our world. So Jesus came, died on the cross, made reconciliation possible, and gives you the ability to know your father again. And so you're on this journey through life going, I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. I am who they say I am. I am who I want to be. I am who I'm going to be one day. I'm going to pursue. And Jesus comes in and says, I know who you are. And the, one of the greatest passages of this is Jeremiah 1. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And I ordained thee to be a prophet unto sanctified and ordained thee. What is God saying to Jeremiah? Jeremiah, I know, who you, I know how I shaped you. I know your personality. I shaped you. I put you in that womb. I gave you purpose I gave you value. You have individual, unique value. And I have called you to a community. Jeremiah, I'm plugging you in to ancient Israel at a critical juncture. Jeremiah was the last and most prominent prophet before the Babylonian exile. If you've ever read Daniel chapter 1 and asked yourself, how did Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego know to take a stand? How did they know that God was going to be with them? Let me tell you who taught them that. Jeremiah. Daniel was deported from Jeremiah's hometown. Anathoth is the village where Jeremiah was a priest kid. And he's like 15, sitting in a revival led by King Josiah, who was like 20 at the time. And he says, the word of the Lord came to me. It's like teen camp or a youth conference. And he's sitting there and God says, Jeremiah, you're going to be my messenger. And Jeremiah, read the book. We know him as the weeping prophet. Why? Because nobody listened to him. He never had measurable success. He never had a thriving church. He never had thriving fruit. He got thrown into a pit. He got rejected. He got betrayed. He, he was the enemy of the nation. Why? Because he's saying, give in to Babylon. Go with them. It would be the modern day equivalent of somebody standing up saying, yep, we should just give in to Afghanistan. We should just give in to ISIS. We should just give in. This is God judging us. That's what Jeremiah did. And everybody hated him. But somebody was listening to him. There was a group, there was a group of remnant young people that when they got deported to Babylon, they took his message with them. So my point is, God knew what he was doing when he made Jeremiah unique in that place and time. And here's the thing. Okay, the snow shovel. It does have a design. It does have an identity. It does have a purpose. It's not a work of art. It was engineered and designed for a purpose, to move snow. And if the snow shovel had a personality, 
If it could think, it wouldn't be happy hanging in an art museum. <laughs> it would only be happy moving snow, okay? Here's my point. I'm being a little bit facetious, but you are designed by a creator, and you have intrinsic value, and you have unique purpose and calling, and you can't find that for yourself. You can't define that for yourself. That's an impossible, it's irrational. It's a completely incoherent proposition. You must be reconciled with your creator and walking through life in a personal relationship with Jesus and living every day out of this knowledge. I am here by God's design. He accepts me as I am. And I'm not performing for an identity. I'm not living up to an identity. I have one. I wake up loved. I go to sleep loved. I wake up graced. I wake up as the object of God's mercy. He always loves me all the way. He doesn't love me more on my good days and less on my bad days. Now, some people are afraid of this message. Performance-based Christians are afraid of this message. because, And some of you might even be sitting there thinking, oh, he's giving these young people permission to go do whatever they want to do, and it's okay because they're forgiven and grace. That's grace gone wild. That's grace abused. That's grace misunderstood. Okay? Grace does not motivate us to sin more. It motiv- when we get it, it motivates us to sin less. Okay? Why? Because the love of God is so fulfilling. The definition of God is so objective. It's so fixed. It's so permanent. You did nothing to earn it. You can do nothing to lose it. And when everything else in your life comes undone, you are still you by God's definition. So you can't lose this. And nothing that life can throw at you can shake this because Jesus is unshakable. And this is why Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And I'm sitting in bed with cancer and chemo saying, God, what are you doing? And the answer was, Philippians 1, the things that have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. God said, Carrie, I know you don't want to be cancer guy, and don't worry about it, you're not cancer guy. You're my child, and I'm giving you a stewardship. I'm giving you a trial, but it's not just a trial, it's a platform. So you can crawl under it and mope and cry and gripe and complain in self-pity, or you can climb on top of it and declare the gospel to people who will listen to you now because you're speaking from the jaws of suffering and death. And I'm like, oh my goodness, God, you didn't just give me a hard time. You handed me a megaphone. You see, when you have a gospel identity and life hands you a trial, God just handed you a megaphone. And I decided in that cancer, sure, it was hard. Sure, we cried. Sure, we had dark days. But on my good days, on my clear days, on my, on my you know, rational, my, my brain was working days, I decided to try to help other people understand that suffering was not the end of the world. And it wasn't the failure of God. I'll never get doing a blog post and somebody forwarded it to somebody and they forwarded it to somebody and I, later I got a, an email from a guy in Afghanistan. This is when the fighting was raging. He actually was in Germany and he said, I'm getting ready to get shipped to Afghanistan. My buddies are dying. And he said, I'm afraid to die. And somebody forwarded me your blog post and why are you not afraid to die? And I pointed into the Dunn book, and two days later, he wrote me, and he said, I'm shipping out tomorrow, but I read your Dunn book, and I trusted Christ last night as my Savior, and I'm no longer afraid to die. And God said, see, Carrie, the things which have happened unto you have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. What's the point I'm making? If you have a, if, in the gospel, you have an identity that is unshakable. It's who God knows that you are. It's who God is making you to be. It's everything in him that he's designed for you to become and and be in this life. And it is durable no matter what. You can never lose it. It is, and here's the beautiful thing about it, okay? Jesus said to Peter, follow me 
and I will make you, okay, fishers of men, right? But, but just pause and just stop and think about the phrase, follow me and I will make you. You know what we hear? Follow me and you better make yourself, okay? And here's what I love about this, okay? The disciples, the process goes like this. Losing, finding, flourishing. Jesus said lose to find. Okay, how do you lose? Well, I'm, I'm going to warn you. Jesus is going to do this work in your life whether you want him to or not. Okay, and he does it different ways in all of us. And you don't need to be afraid of it. Okay, please hear me. If, if, if you don't get anything else, I hope you'll remember me saying these words. Don't be afraid of tribulation in this life. I don't want cancer again, but I'm truly not afraid of it. Because cancer showed me who my God is at such a deeper level. I'll, I'll, I'll close with a story in a minute that'll drive it, uh, I hope, to your heart. We fear, we try every way we can to avoid discomfort and insecurity and tribulation, and that's good and fine. But it's impossible. The world is fragile. You are fragile. If your identity is in your looks, give it 20 years. <laughs> you think you're young and beautiful and all that, and 25, 30 years, you'll look like this. <laughs> Okay, it's pretty bad, okay? Unless you're my wife or some of these ladies that just don't age. It's like everybody thinks Dana's my daughter. Um, if, you're, if your identity is in your ability to perform, uh, just, just, just one stroke, one health crisis, one disability, you're shattered. If your identity is in your family, one loss, and, and I'm not just saying grief, it, it's, it's unrecoverable grief. If, you're, if your identity is in the gospel, there's still grief. Loss is still loss. It's painful, but it's not suicidal. It's not despairing. It's grieving and going through it, but I, I'm still me, and I still have purpose, and, and Jesus still values me, and I'm going to see that loved one again soon, and I can go on in my purpose. So we're going to lose our fragile identity structures. One way or another, we're going to lose them. But the most, to me, the most beautiful part of this, in some sense, is that it takes who I want to be and who others need me to be, and it puts them together. Okay? It honors my uniqueness in God's design, but then God's providence takes that uniqueness and plugs me in where he places me. You see, you're here or in your church or whatever church you're part of, God put you there. God gave you the abilities, the gifts. You don't want to glory in them. You want to use them as gifts from him. You don't want to find your identity in, the, in I'm a deacon or I'm a teacher or I'm this or that. That's a bad place. That's traditional. You want to find your identity as I'm a child of God and I get the privilege to serve this community. And here's... When individuality meets community, you, it's as full as you can be. You ha the highest being in the universe sets his love upon you, declares you valuable, significant, secure. The highest being in the universe suddenly you have all the acceptance you could ever need. You have all the affirmation you could ever want. You have all the purpose you could ever live out in eternal value. And suddenly, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks of you. You're not looking at other people saying, validate me, love me, bless me, affirm me, secure me. I need, I need, I need. No, you wake up and you go at life this way. I'm full. How can I bless you? How can I serve you? How can I affirm you? We all wake up, we all walk into a room going go one direction or the other. We're either living for validation or from it. We're either living for love or from it. 
living for acceptance or from it. God's done a work in our church that's, to me, it's unusual. Frankly, it's a little bit out of my comfort zone. We're doing stuff that I've not seen done in the churches I grew up in, and it's cost me some friends. They've criticized me. They've slandered me. Some people lie about me. Frankly, this book, as I was working with the publisher, I teach and use the King James Version of the Bible. They said, if we're going to publish you, we want you to use a newer version. You pick it, but we're gonna, we want you to do that. And I really wrestled with that. Not because I think I was sinning, but because I have so many friends that are going to shoot me. <laughs> because it's more than a preference. It's an identity to them. And I had, actually, my agent said, why are you so uptight about this? I said, because I already get a lot of criticism and take a lot of heat that I don't have the emotional bandwidth to, to process, so I just kind of check out on it. But this is like handing those same people another rock and saying, would you just throw this one at me now? Would you just, like right here, hit me right here, you know? And literally God broke me down because that book started this way. God, I don't have a publisher right now and I don't, I don't, I don't have to write, but if you want me to write, you have to send me an opportunity. That's how it started. Like, God, I'm not gonna write another book unless you send me an opportunity. I came back in the house. I took a long walk with God. I came to Dana. I said, Dana, I'm at great peace. I love being a pastor. I love being your husband. And I just gave writing back to God. I don't think he wants me to write anymore. Two weeks later, I'm on the phone with Moody Publications. I'm like, what? How in the world? So, so God's like, Carrie, I opened this door for you. You, you totally surrendered, and I opened the door, and now you're going to use the fear of man against, you know, the open door for me? And so I realized I had, to, I had to release the approval of others to follow Jesus as my Lord. And you will too. And it's only knowing that he totally affirms and accepts you that gives you the ability to do that without resenting, without scorning and despising the people that would criticize you. Okay, that's a gospel identity. I gotta wrap this up. I'm gonna tell you a quick story. Um, let, me, let me say a couple uh, closing things, then I'll tell you the end of Larry's story and one final anecdote. Traditional identity asks this always, what do other people want me to do? Even under the guise of God. And sometimes the problem, one of our great challenges in Bible-believing churches is that we grab Jesus and we bring him into a traditional identity structure and our kids think the gospel is just another thing they need to run from. Okay. Um, the story of the prodigal son. You have two brothers, two sons. You have one that is stuck in a traditional identity, the good son. And I always heard that story this way. Don't be the bad son, be the good son. But the real truth of the story is don't be either son. They're both bad, okay? The good son, quote unquote, is secretly scornful of his father, keeping his dad's rules so he can le leverage his dad's money. That's wicked. And it's the same thing as believers in modern day jumping through God's hoops so we can leverage God's blessings. And when it breaks, we go, God, you, I deserve better than that. You failed me. You let me down. And we're really disappointed with God. So the older son is, they're both alienated. They're both ostracized from their father. The older brother represents the Pharisees. Okay. Who were leveraging God's laws to exploit people and get rich and oppress the common Israelite, okay? And that's why the Pharisees hated Jesus, because he was exposing all of that. So the good son, alienated from his dad, work, to that son, his dad was a slave taskmaster, who only, greedy, only doling out blessings as the work was done. The young son was the modern identity. The young son said, I'm not going to go by your rules anymore. Give me my money, and I'm out. And he liberated himself. And he ended up like Elsa, alone. <laughs> in a kingdom of isolation. What did Elsa do? 
she eventually came right back around to community and she became the good queen of Arendelle because she needed her people. And the story does come full circle. Well, in the prodigal story, the rebellious, the defiant, the liberating son reaches bottom and realizes the modern narrative, the, the, that's an ancient story, but modern in terms of our day, didn't work either, and, he's, and he needs his dad. And he remembers his dad is a gracious man and a generous man. And the story is sad because the young son is the only one of the two that actually experiences the true heart of his father. He goes back wanting to work his way back, not in, into sonship, work his way back just into being able to live in the village as a hired laborer. So this is what we do. God, can I work my way to your approval, even though I'm saved? See, legalism has two faces. One form of legalism is work to get saved. The other form of legalism is work to stay saved or work to pay off your debt. And we even sing it sometimes, all to him I owe which I, I get it, I get the intent of that, but literally in heaven, you do not have a ledger sheet that you're paying on. God's not entering payments. You're not whittling down your balance, okay? That balance is so big, you could never begin to even think about it. You just fall down and go, thank you, God, for your mercy, okay? But um, the young son comes back and is immediately reinstated as a son. And his inheritance is fully reinstated, which is why the older brother is seething angry and screaming at his dad because he can't imagine his dad being that generous and that gracious and that forgiving. So this gospel identity is me being wrapped up in the generous heart of God and finding the totality of my fulfillment in that love and not from anything else in life. So... Larry's story was essentially, yeah, his memory came back, but the pivotal moment was me saying, find your identity in me. I know who you are. Stop trying to figure it out for yourself and trust me. Lay your head back and rest. Sounds like Jesus. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Learn of me. I am meek and lowly of heart. Take my yoke upon you. I think I've rearranged that, but my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the traditional and modern identity is heavy. Oh, you're always working hard. It's exhausting. Gospel identity, I am who Jesus says I am. I'm free to live in his acceptance and love, and that love motivates me to honor him, to serve him, to serve others, to live generously, selflessly, lavishly, and find great fulfillment in him. Now, uh, last story, and I'm done. I have a grandson, grand twins, Chad and Charlie. Charlie's the girl, Chad's the boy. And they're about three and a half, coming into four. We do a big family vacation down to Orlando. We rent a house. We're going to go to the theme parks a couple of days. But at this house, this is in a neighborhood, and there's in the middle of this neighborhood is a water park. Um, slides and splash pad, big pool, um, and this big lazy river. And we've been psyching these kids up all the drive. We did a long drive down to Orlando and getting them all psyched up. And, and Hillary, my daughter-in-law, has gone out and bought, you know, swimming, you know, arm, pat, arm wing, you know, what are they called? Swimmies and floaties and, and life vest and, and shoes. I mean, Chad comes out of his room that morning. We're going to go to the lazy river in the pool. He looks... He's dressed, he's decked out in Cars, Inc. swimming paraphernalia. <laughs> this kid looks like he's cut right out of a catalog. I mean, he is so decked out in swimming gear. Goggles, gear, head to toe, it all matches, it's all red and blue. I mean, you would think this kid is a professional swimmer. We get to the pool, Charlie's ironic, she's hilarious. She's, she's got no sense of danger, she thinks she's a dolphin. She jumps into pools and, I mean, she just, she has no fear of water. Chad, on the other hand, I'm watching him. He walks over to the edge of the pool, and this pool is, in his eyes, it just must have been a vast ocean of danger. And then right off the edge of the pool is the lazy river and the current, and you got to grab the tubes and you ride it. It's really fun. 
And so Chad is standing at the edge of the pool looking out at that, and he's got all the gear. So he's got, whether traditional or modern, he's got his identity. I am a swimmer. I am a Disney swimmer, okay? I am a Lightning McQueen swimmer, okay? But now he's looking at the water, and he's not so sure, okay? And I see his chest start to heave with, with nervousness. Oh, no, this is, this is scary. And I'm Papa. So I walk up behind him. I grab him by the arm. I scoop him up into my arms, and I say, come on, Chad, Papa, we'll take you. And I wade out into the water. Well, when I do that, Chad panics. <gasps> and, he, and now he's breathing heavily, and he's clutching onto my torso, and he's climbing my torso like a tree. <laughs> because the water is coming up, okay, as I'm wading out into the water, and his legs, every time they touch the water, his legs are moving higher. So it's like, it's like I've got an orangutan <laughs> strapped to my head and neck, okay? He's climbing up, and I'm working him down. I'm, I'm trying to peel his... It's like the kid grew four more legs and arms. Just I'm peeling him off my body, and every time I move one appendage, the other one's gripping, and I'm, I'm working him down into the water, and he's resisting. No, Papa, no, Papa, Papa, no, Papa, no, Papa, Papa. Okay. And just to pause the story, when God starts to intervene in your life and peel back the layers of your identity, that's kind of how you react. No, 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 don't, don't move that, don't change that. Not, my, not that job, not that place. We work ourselves into places of security that are even bad for us. A job that's got us working too many hours, neglecting our family, that's not good. But we think it's the only thing we can do, holding on to it for dear life. So Chad's climbing, and I'm putting him back into the water, and I realize this fear is going to wreck his whole vacation. Like there is an entire world of fun and, and, and laughter and joy out there in that water that he's not going to get to participate in unless I help him understand what this is. So as I'm going into the water, I'm lowering him and I'm pushing him down into the water. He's protesting the whole time. I peel his legs off his arms. I finally am holding him out like this, where he can't really reach me. And he's like, no, Papa, no. And I start to lower him into the water. The water's three feet. He's like three. I mean, this water comes up to here. He can stand up. He doesn't know it. We're right where the current for the lazy river is. And I start to lower him into the water, and I start to let the, his feet go out behind him, and I start to grab, I have his shoulders, and I, I let his arms slide down through my hands. He's like, Papa, Papa, no! And I, and I grab his hands. And I'm looking at his face now, and I'm down here at the water level, and I'm saying, Chad, stand up. He's not hearing me. Chad, stand up. He's not hearing me. Chad, calm down. Stand up. Papa, he's going, Papa, Papa. You know, my, my wife thinks I'm torturing him. She's all grace, I'm all law. Somehow we made it work. Okay. So I realize I can only do one thing, okay, and it's going to terrify him. It's going to terrify him for half a second. But then it's going to totally transform him. I've got to let go of his hands. And in a split second, I've got to grab his ankles and I've got to pull his ankles down. So, this is what I do. I let go of his hands. He's sure that I have just thrown him to death. I reach down and grab his ankles, and now he's, and I start to pull them down, and the look on his face, it's like, my papa's killing me. He really was like, papa's killing me. And this is all in a fraction of a second. And, I, and I'm down under the water now, and I grab his ankles, and I plant them on the concrete of the swimming pool. And my face is that far from his face, right about here where the water is. And I've got his ankles down here. And I smile at him. And I go, Stand up. And he pauses. And you can see his brain. And he stands up. Now the water's up about here. And he goes, Oh! And he looks at me 
And he's totally released. And for the next eight days, he swam. He loved it. But it had to be the oh moment. Now, i got to stop. Track the followers of Jesus after the crucifixion. They're devastated. There for three days in that space where Chad is while I'm letting him go. All of their dreams are crushed. They're not who they thought they were because Jesus is not who they thought he was. He's a failure. He's a disappointment. Three days, can you, I just want to talk to them in heaven. Tell me about that three days. God, why did you let them sit there for three days? Why not resurrect like a few hours later or the next day, you know? Why let them sit there? Why let Paul sit there three days blind in Damascus? Uh, sitting there stewing, fear, panic. And then he resurrects. And most of them are transformed almost immediately. Peter is in Galilee. And there's this John 21 interaction where Jesus comes to Peter. And that whole interaction, I believe, I write about in the book, is Peter has lost his identity at that point. He has no idea who he is. He's just gone back to fishing. He's no revolutionary. He's not the courageous warrior he thought he was. So he's just going back to fishing. But Jesus comes and says, feed my sheep. I know who you are. You have value. You have significance. Get back in the game. And then you go to Acts. Peter's preaching. 3,000 people get saved. I think they're looking around going, somebody's got to talk here. Peter, why not you? Okay, all right, I'll give him a try. I don't think Peter's like, I'm ready to do this. Everybody buckle up. It's going to be, watch what I'm about to do. I think Peter was as surprised as everybody else was. I think they were shocked at what happened. There's this moment where they're, the ascension. Everybody in town wants them dead. Jesus is gone. And they're going back to town high-fiving and hugging and celebrating. They're like elated. But everybody wants them dead. Do you see what happened? There was this oh moment where their feet hit solid ground. They, they suddenly realized, oh, we're secure. Like, game on, God wins, and we're here for a mission. And so we truly can be fearless now. This is my last thought. Get this. They didn't work at this. It grew up in them. They realized it. It was, oh, oh, I don't have to work at being somebody. Oh, God, oh, oh. And, and I pray that as you process everything we've talked about tonight, a gospel identity will be an oh experience where the world is shifting around you and fearful, but God grabs you by the ankles and shows you the solid ground that's always right under you. And then he says, stand up and go make a difference in the world. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.